turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 22 covering verses 15 to 46. I titled this morning's message, The Wisdom of the King. And let's open in prayer. Father, I want to thank you uh, for the time of worship this morning. Uh, Lord, just honoring and praising you and glorifying you for all that you have done. Lord, we have this communion table set even for today, Lord, to remember, to come before you and with thankful hearts of what you have accomplished in our life. But Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that we would have open ears to hear, that you would speak some truth into our hearts, that we would hear and that we would respond. And Lord, that we would go further with you today. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have been looking now at this period in Jesus' life called the Passion Week. We are still on day Tuesday of that Passion Week. We finished... uh, in chapter 22 uh, last Sunday, uh, talking about the uh, third parable where Jesus gave this parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus and his disciples, they, they remained on that Temple Mount on that Tuesday. And the conversations continued. Even after Jesus had given these parables that were directed right at the Pharisees and these religious leaders, that were there, uh, they went out and they began to plot. They began to, to think, how can we trip him up? How can we trap him? You see, as the days continue, really as the hour continues, things intensify. Uh, This is a, a, a really an intense time in our Lord's ministry as he knows that the day is approaching. And everyone else, including his disciples, they weren't even really aware at this point of what was going to come to pass. But he was. He knew that his hour was coming. When he gave these parables that he directed at these Pharisees and these religious leaders, these scribes that were there, it was the Sanhedrin that he was speaking to. These were the religious leaders that should have known what the scripture said concerning him. But he gave them the parable of the two sons. And Jesus finished that parable by telling them that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. It's almost like he's pointing his finger right at them, and in a sense he was. The emphasis upon that parable was their refusing and their refusal to repent. The second parable that he gave was the parable of the wicked vine dresser. Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And the emphasis upon this parable was their rejection of him as their Messiah. The parable of the wedding feast that we looked at uh, was the third parable that Jesus gave on this same day. 
And we're told that this king had given an invitation to those to come to the wedding. And on the third invitation that went out, after no response, of their unwillingness to come, the excuses they had, we're told that the king was furious and that he sent out his armies to destroy those murderers and to burn their city. I believe that this is even speaking prophetically of what was to come upon the nation of Israel and their city and the temple itself. The king also said to one who had come to the wedding in this parable uh, that came in with improper dress. He didn't have on his wedding garment. He told the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And the emphasis that Jesus put upon this parable was upon reception. Uh, They were invited, but they were unwilling. The Jews, these religious leaders that should have known, the invitation went out, but they were unwilling to come. And he warned them also about those who would try to enter the kingdom without that proper wedding garment. You see, when you stand before God in his kingdom someday, the only way that you'll stand there is if you have on the righteous garments that Jesus gives you. His righteousness is what you're going to wear when you stand before God someday. And in that, God will accept you. After the second parable in chapter 21, verse 46, we're told that these religious leaders that they sought to lay hands on Jesus, but then it tells us, but they feared the multitudes. And the reason they feared them is because they took Jesus to be a prophet. And so the religious leaders had this fine line that they had to walk. There were those that were being really drawn to Jesus, those that took him to be a prophet, And so they had to find that place. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to trap But the people were being drawn to him, and they had to find that place. We know that these encounters with these religious leaders, they they weren't just casual conversations. This wasn't wasn't Jesus just sitting down with them having a, a theological debate. I think that what we see here is that these were intense conversations. Uh, These were men, religious leaders, that were infuriated with Jesus. And after Jesus had given these three parables, we're told that these religious leaders, that they went out and they plotted. Think of that word. They plotted how they might entangle him or trap him in his talk. And so here we have the religious leaders of Israel coming together and plotting and consulting with each other how they might trap him. I think as they sat there, they probably thought, what we need to do is we need to pose some questions to Jesus. Uh, These questions, we need to trap him in them. Uh, And we need to do it in front of the people. Uh, We need to do it in front of them as they're listening. You see, they wanted to discredit Jesus. 
They wanted to come up with some questions and some things that they could say to him that would put him on the spot that he wouldn't be able to answer them properly and discredit Jesus before the people. They were hoping to trap him with a question that would show that he wasn't superior to the rabbis. He wasn't superior to us either. As the religious leaders of Israel, he's not superior. Even though the people were amazed at his teaching, they were being drawn to him, they were threatened by that, weren't they? They were hoping that he would give an answer that would offend the people. Or or maybe that he would give an answer that would provoke Rome. That they would... The authorities would come up against him. You see, their pride, especially after those three parables, they were pricked. Their pride was pricked. They were feeling this threat by Jesus. Their power, their positions that they held, they were at stake. And they knew it. And the multitudes were saying, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. That irritated them. They didn't want to hear that. You see, prophets were highly respected by Jews. When a prophet came into town, everyone dropped what they were doing to hear the prophet. And here is Jesus, and they were recognizing him as that. These religious leaders had already questioned Jesus' authority back in chapter 21, verse 23. Remember when they came to him and they, they, they asked him, what, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In other words, we didn't. We didn't give you the authority for you to speak or to perform miracles or to do right in here on this temple mount on the back of a donkey as king. We didn't give you that authority. It's also, though, important to know that in this day and culture where uh, there was a lot of open-air debating that went on, A lot of people gathering together. And in this case, it was up on the Temple Mount. That it wasn't unheard of for somebody to walk into the midst of of somebody that was speaking, a teacher or a rabbi, and go up and interrupt that conversation with a question. It wasn't even considered rude for them to do that or look down upon. They could actually come into the midst and pose a question to the teacher for everyone to hear. And that's what we're going to see take place this morning. In this next section, though, we, we're going to see a new group of people that are going to be introduced. It's the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are only mentioned twice in the gospel. It's here in our, our text this morning and also in Mark's gospel in chapter 3 and chapter 12. But the Herodians they weren't so much a religious group as they were a political party. They were Jews, but unlike the Pharisees, they were more tolerant to Rome. They were supporters of King Herod and and even the whole Herodian dynasty. They supported that whole thing. They believed in paying taxes and tribute to Caesar. 
which the Pharisees denied. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees didn't even like the Herodians. They were actually enemies of one another. They were opposing views, and they didn't like that. But on this particular occasion, they had a common hatred. They had something that drew them together. It was this hatred for Jesus. And it brought them together so that they sat down together and began to plot how they might trap Jesus. Now look at your Bibles at verse 15. This is the Pharisees, disciples, and the Herodians that come to Jesus with a question about taxes. Look what it says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. Now this word entangled that we see here can also be translated in some of your Bibles, trapped. That they might trap him, that they might catch him like, a, like, like an animal, animal being trapped in a, a snare. This was their intentions. This is what they were plotting and wanting to do. And part of this plotting of the Pharisees was to send their own disciples. Now, their own disciples were the, the ones that were following after the Pharisaic way. They, they had their own disciples that followed them. And they also wanted to send the Herodians who were the supporters of paying taxes to Caesar. You see, this was all done in this time of plotting. And the Herodians, like the Pharisees, they also were feeling the threat of Jesus. Uh, they, they might have been thinking in their mind, you know what, if Jesus continues to do what he's doing and the, his popularity continues to grow... He might be successful in this. And as a matter of fact, he might be one that would try to overthrow the Herodian dynasty. He might come in and, and, and begin to overthrow Rome. And what that meant to them was that their positions were at stake. Their party. Their sect. And they were threatened by that. And so we have both the Pharisees and the Herodians together, coming together to try and eliminate Jesus. And so the Pharisees in verse 16, they sent to Jesus their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. What's interesting here is how shrewd they are. They are actually approaching Jesus with flattery. They're, they're trying to prep him for the question that they're about to ask him. A question that was never intended to be a sincere or honest question. You see, they were plotting this. They were thinking this through. And they approached him, and they started out by saying, Teacher, for someone to do that, it was, a, it was a way of respect. They're calling him teacher. And he says, We know that you are true. In other words, this flattery that they were giving to Jesus right now was a way of saying to Jesus... We know that you will follow the truth. 
or that you are truthful, Jesus. And in a sense, they were saying to Jesus, you're an honest man. And you're a man of integrity, Jesus. You're the one who can be relied upon to say what is right and what is true. This is the kind of flattery that they were putting before the Lord. They were setting him up for their question. Teachers of that day were to be respected, and they knew that. He had his following. There were those on that Temple Mount that were listening in to his teaching. They were mesmerized by his teaching. And so they approached him in really this this dishonest way. But what's interesting about everything that they were saying about Jesus, it's all true. Every bit of it was true. But after all these insincere compliments, then they drop the bombshell. Then they come with the question. Look at verse 17. They said, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful, or we could say, is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. uh, They were thinking about uh, in this tax that would go to Caesar, they were talking about the tribute or the poll tax that was put upon the people to pay to Caesar. And this poll tax was nothing more than money that would go into the coffers of Caesar and it would be used for the government there, but it had no benefit to the people. And as they were asking Jesus this question, they knew from their plotting They knew that the mindset of their fellow Jews towards Rome and towards Caesar, uh, and Caesar Augustus was the Caesar at the time, they knew their mindset. They knew that this question would be one that Jesus would not be able to get out of. They knew that the Jews understood from Deuteronomy chapter 17 It says that when you come into the land, speaking of the nation of Israel, which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. You see, that's the way the Jew thought. It had to be who God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. That was the mindset of the Jew. We're under this Roman oppression. We're under this this kingdom here that is oppressing us with this foreign king, this emperor that has his hand of oppression upon us. That's the way they thought, and they wanted to separate themselves from that. They didn't like the poll tax. They didn't like paying tribute to Caesar and to a foreign king. They saw themselves as God's people that were separated from the heathen nations and the control of these heathen kings in the Roman Empire. That's why when the Messiah comes, that's why they have this mindset. When he comes, he's going to deliver us from that. He's going to set up his kingdom and deliver us from their wicked hands. And with this knowledge, these Pharisees and these Herodians 
we're thinking, we'll get him in this question. We'll get him on this one. They were confident that whatever way Jesus would answer this question, that his answer would turn against him. What they were hoping for, though, was really just a simple yes or no answer. That's what they wanted to hear. Yes or no. We asked you a question, just tell it. You know, like, like the lawyer that puts that witness on the stand and, and just tells him, I simply want you to answer the question, yes or no. That's what they were hoping that Jesus would do. Just a simple yes or no. They were thinking that if he says yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar. Then the people, the Jews, would turn against him. Because they saw paying tribute to Caesar as a really a form of slavery to Rome. That wouldn't have went over well. If he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then we can accuse him of being a threat to Rome. And just like the past insurrections against Rome, he may also cause another rebellion against Rome. I would say that if he would have said no and simply said no to them, they would have been hightailing it over to tell the Roman officials, we need to be careful. This Jesus is going to rise up here in another insurrection against Rome. That's what they were hoping for. But Jesus doesn't give them the simple yes or no answer. Look at verse 18. But Jesus perceived what? Their wickedness. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? I don't know if he said it that mildly. You know, why why do you test me, you hypocrites? I don't know. I don't know how he said it. But anyway that he said it, it didn't sound good in their ears. I don't think any of us like to be called a hypocrite especially when you're a religious leader. But Jesus knew their hearts. And, and by the way, he knows your heart. He knows all the, the things in our heart, whether they're true or false, whether, whatever they are, he knows our hearts. And here's Jesus calling them out on it. You're being insincere in your question. You're flattering me. Your words of flattery were insincere. And now this insincerity is coming back in their faces. You said it right. I am truthful to these religious leaders. I am not a respecter of persons. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? He's calling them actors. That's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor. Somebody that plays the part. And that's all they were doing. But Jesus says, I know your wicked hearts. And those, this question that you're asking me right now, it was birthed from a wicked heart. That's the truth. That's what Jesus was telling them. And so Jesus goes on and he says to them in verse 19, he says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now a denarius was a Roman coin. 
It was the most common currency in Rome in the day. It was a silver coin about the size of a dime. It was the value of a day's wages. It was the coin that everyone would use to pay tribute to Caesar. But on this coin, it was imprinted with the face of one of the Roman emperors. And at this particular time, it would have either been Caesar Augustus or Tiberius Caesar that would have been on that coin. You see, the Jews, they didn't even like to carry this coin around. Jews didn't like to have it on their persons, really, because it had the face of the emperor upon it. It was their enemy. It was the enemy against Israel. This was the coin that many of the money changers would exchange when the Jews would come to temple, when they would come to the feast and the money changers that were on the outskirts exchanging money. They would take this denarius and they would trade it for a shekel or a half shekel, which would have been an acceptable form of money to give in the temple. So Jesus tells them, he says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And so it sounds like they had to go and get it. They go and they get a denarius. And then in verse 20, he says to them, whose image and inscription is this? I wonder if he just kind of held it up to them. Whose image is this that's on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God." That wasn't the response that they wanted to hear. They just wanted a yes or no to their question. And here's Jesus taking it further. You see, in verse 17, they had simply asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay or to give taxes to Caesar or not? But here Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word render. He says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, there are things that are due to Caesar. And whatever is right, all of you as citizens should pay Caesar. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a right thing to do. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But Jesus didn't leave it with that, did he? Jesus said to them, but you have another obligation. The other obligation is that you need to render to God the things that are God's. And so he took it to another level. He, he brought it back on them. They had to be thinking to themselves. They were m- most concerned with just asking this question of whether or not it's right to give that tax to Caesar. And here's Jesus now telling them, but you're under obligation to render the things to God, the things that are God's. I don't think this was setting well with them. Because, see, at this point, they realized that Jesus, once again, in all of his wisdom, had stopped their mouths. When they heard these words, look at verse 22, they marveled. What's that look like? They marveled at his words, and they left him, and they went their way. They had nothing to say. 
They couldn't say anything. They were astonished at his answer. And and their hopes of trapping him, they were crushed. We we, we thought this was foolproof. We thought we were going to be able to trap him in this. And they didn't. And they had to walk away. But they had nothing more to say. And so here they go, walking off. I, I have to think that when they left and they went back to the Pharisees who had sent them out, what do you think that that sounded like in their ears? As they, they came into the Pharisees, uh, the disciples came in, the Herodians came in, and they said, uh, Jesus just silenced us. We couldn't, we, we, we couldn't trap him on this. But now the Pharisees were silent. But then we come to this next section here, and we see another group approach Jesus. It's the Sadducees. Look at verse 23. It starts out with the words, the same day. Now, I hope as believers that you realize yourself that you have an adversary, the devil, that goes after you every single day. He is looking to trap you, trip you up, and defeat you on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. You see, what's transpiring on this particular Tuesday there on that Temple Mount, all of this is happening on this one day. The enemy, the, 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 the powers of Satan are, are in the back. They're working. They're alive. They're on that Temple Mount. Your enemy never stops, does he? He won't stop. He's relentless against you. He wants to distract you daily. He wants to discourage you. He wants to get you in your flesh. He wants to challenge you in what you believe. Challenge your faith. That's our enemy. That's what was transpiring here in the spiritual realm as these religious leaders were approaching Jesus. Verse 23 to verse 33, it's the Sadducees coming now with another question. This is the question of the resurrection. Verse 23 says, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This was going to be another one of those strategic questions they thought. They were going to try and trap him in this one. You see, the Sadducees theologically didn't believe in a resurrection. And they were going to go with something that they thought that they could trip him up on. This practice of a wife losing her husband and then the brother coming in and and taking his brother's wife to be his wife to carry on the lineage and the the, uh, inheritance within that family line, that was common 
That's what they were instructed to do. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. It says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband, husband's brother to her. And so this is something that the Jews understood. This was a practice that they were instructed in their scriptures to do. And then they continue in verse 25 with this scenario to Jesus. This is They're painting this picture for Jesus. Now there were with us seven brothers. It's interesting that Matthew's gospel is the only one that uses the word with us, which possibly means that this was a real scenario. This wasn't something that they just made up. They're speaking as if this was a first-hand account of something that they knew of. Now there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died also. Now, when I started reading that, I'm just thinking, you know, what can I say? This woman had a rough life. You're talking about losing seven husbands, and in the other Gospels, it tells us that not one of those husbands was able to give her children. So here's this woman now finally dying. She's had seven husbands. And this is where they believe they're going to put Jesus into a dilemma. Remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. That's the question. So when we come to verse 28, where these Sadducees, like the Herodians, thought their question was going to trap Jesus, uh, that they were going to humiliate Jesus really in front of the crowd, they're going to find out otherwise. But what they didn't realize as they were speaking to Jesus, is that they were speaking to the resurrection and the life. Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25, this was after, this is before the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus told her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, He shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? They were speaking to the one who is the resurrection and the life. And then in verse 28, it says, Therefore, they finished with this, Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all had her, for they all had her. The Jews, they did permit polygamy. But what the Jews didn't allow is polyandry. Polyandry was a woman that could have multiple husbands. They could have, men could have multiple wives, but women could not have multiple husbands. And so, and they knew this. This was all part of their, 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 this time that they were in. To the Sadducees, this made the doctrine of the resurrection impossible. 
You see, this is how they're trying to trap him because no woman on, uh, no woman like on earth here could have multiple husbands. And because of that, no woman in heaven could also have multiple husbands. This is where they think they're going to get him. Jesus answers in verse 29 and says to them, you are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. This probably didn't set well with them. These were the ones that they took pride in the fact they did know the scriptures and what it said. The King James Bible reads, you do err. Or you're mistaken in what you're thinking. Or you have strayed from the right path. Or you're deceiving yourself in your thinking here. You see, these Sadducees were basing their question upon the scriptures. But they didn't have the whole of scripture. They didn't have the whole understanding. And that's important for us to all take note of and also to be cautioned by. You see, they knew their scriptures, but their interpretation was wrong. That was the problem. Uh, There are people that do that today. The cults are big on that. Uh, They take one particular verse out of the Bible and they build a doctrine upon it. But what that's called in in the theological terms uh, is eisegesis. It's when you take and you try to uh, come to a scripture with a preconceived idea and then you try to make it say what it doesn't say. That's eisegesis. What we're supposed to do is exegesis, where we take a passage of Scripture and we look at it, and we draw out of it only what it says. And if it says something that seems to contradict another Scripture, then we have to look through the rest of Scriptures to find out and ask the Lord to give us the balance and the understanding to it. That's why we have to be careful when you read your Bible, that you don't just take one passage of Scripture and say, well, look what it says right here. That's what these uh, Sadducees were doing. They were trying to take their their mindset of thinking, well, a, a woman can't have seven husbands here on earth. How could she have in the resurrection seven husbands in heaven? There certainly must be no life after death. Many uh, people today have erred in this same way, even within the church. That's where we have to be careful, that we never approach God's word with just a preconceived notion of what we think it says, what, who we think he is, but we look at the whole totality of scripture. God, I want to understand you completely. And the only way that I can do that is to take on the whole counsel of your word. And if I don't see how these two seemingly contradictory verses come together, then God help me to see it. That's how we should approach it. The Sadducees weren't ignorant of the Scriptures, but they didn't have the balance of the whole of Scripture. But they also were ignorant of this, the power of God. You see, they didn't believe that the power of God was able to do something above and beyond what they could believe and what they could think. And that's how people often approach God in that way. 
They say, you know what, I can't believe that because I can't see how that works. The cults do it all the time with the deity. They do it all the time with these different doctrinal things. That doesn't make sense to me. And that's what these Sadducees were doing. There are people today that might say, I have a struggle with the resurrection also. And the reason I have a struggle with the resurrection is because, you know what? These people that have been in the tomb for years and hundreds of years, they're just a pile of dust sitting there in a grave. And how is God going to take all of those elements that made up that human being and bring it back together in a resurrection? You see, even the cults deny that. They believe that the grave is where you go and that's it. But I, I have to, it's no problem for me to think that the God that took the earth and formed Adam and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul, I don't think he has any problem with taking what's lying there and bring it back together and make it, giving it a new body in heaven in the resurrection. But if a mind is not capable of being able to believe that, then in disbelief, they'll disregard it. After telling them, after Jesus telling them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God, he says this to them in verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, speaking about the resurrection in the last day, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. The problem with the Sadducees' thinking was they were assuming that there was a rec- uh, they were assuming that there was a resurrection, that this life here on earth, it couldn't continue that way in heaven. And see, God was going to show them different. Look what he says in verse 31. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Again, he's pointing it back at them of what they should know. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Quoting Exodus 3.15. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If you read Luke's parallel gospel to this, listen to how it reads. Luke chapter 20, verse 37. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when Moses called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. When Jesus brought them back to their scripture, they could only say, That's right. That makes sense. That was the scribes. That's what Luke's gospel brings out about what was taking place here. And then we're told that when the multitudes heard this, those that were listening in, It says that they were astonished at his teaching. Once again, Jesus stopped the mouths of the Sadducees. But when, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. Here they go. 
And then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, again testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Here they are. They're not even responding in any other way but disbelief. And then out of the midst of all of that, here comes this lawyer asking another question, wanting to test him again. You see, a lawyer was the interpreter of the law. These are the ones that, that should have known. And they're coming, he comes, and he wants to test Jesus with another question. Which is the great commandment in the law? When he used this, uh, uh, this whole thinking about, uh, about him being uh, tested, uh, these lawyers were thinking... We're going to get him. We're, we're, the, we're the ones that know the law. We're the ones that are the interpreters of the law. And Jesus responds to them in verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Once again, he stopped their mouths. Jesus tells them and tells this lawyer that the first obligation you have is to love God and to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second obligation that you have is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus made it real simple. He says that with these two commandments... You ask me, what's the great commandment? But I tell you that with these two commandments, if you do them, you'll fulfill all the commandments of God. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, I would say still in awe of Jesus' answer, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Now Jesus turns it around on them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Jesus was not specifically asking them to say that he was the Messiah, but he was asking them in a general way in this question to say, how do you know when the Messiah will appear and whose son will he be? They got it right that the Messiah would come through and be a descendant of David. But what they missed was to be found in Psalm 110, verse 1. And Jesus quotes it to them uh, where David said in verse 44, it says, the Lord, which is, I believe, the God... God the Father, the Lord said to my Lord, speaking about the Messiah, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David was speaking of the Messiah here as his Lord. And Jesus goes on to say, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And so Jesus makes that point to them. The answer is that the Messiah is both David's Lord and David's son. 
You see, the Messiah would come through the loins of David. He would come in his humanity as the Son of God, but he was also Messiah because he called him Lord. And then we see in verse 46 that no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. It's kind of like, what else would we say? Every time we come to him, every time we have a question for him, he answers back in all wisdom, and our mouths have been stopped. He's a God of all wisdom. He knows our hearts. He knows man's hearts when they're playing games, when they're not being sincere, when they're speaking as if they believe, but they're really in unbelief. The Lord knows that. But you know what's incredible about our Lord? Even in all of this, he has this great compassion for them. He has this great love for them, even though he called them hypocrites. When we get into the next chapter, in chapter 23, this also is happening on Tuesday, that same day. This is a full day. We're going to see that Jesus is going to pronounce eight woes upon these religious leaders. This was going to be what we might call the nail in the coffin. This is going to be Jesus now speaking these woes against them. And it was going to be a very intense time on that day, on that Tuesday. No one was able to answer him a word. Aren't you thankful that when you go out and you take the gospel out to this world, and and, and God gives you words, and in the moment that you need them, he gives you this word of wisdom from him, and it just speaks to that person, and it makes them have to think. And have you ever shared the gospel and and, and saw how the word of God just began to knock the crutches out from underneath the people's feet? As they tried to make excuses and tried to to tell you, yeah, but, you know, and all these things. and, And then the word of God just continues to knock their crutches away. That's the power of God's word. That's the wisdom that's in God's word. And he's given you his Holy Spirit that works in you and works through you to even be a witness for him that you might go out and to, to stop the mouths of those that would speak false doctrine or speak against the truth. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.